we are we are back again for Beyond Sunday. Uh, today, though, is a special guest that's sitting here with us. He's been here before. A lot of you know Bob Krychek, and mm-hmm. hopefully you got to hear him preach this last weekend uh, through Second Thessalonians. Is it Krychek or Krychek? It is Krychek. Krychek. Okay. The definitive pronunciation. We've, We've got We've now it. got the pronunciation correct. <laughs> it's capital K-R with an E with a line over it, right? Wait, Krychek. I don't know. <laughs> anyway. You're talking about the original Czech name. I have no I idea how that was spelled. Yeah, you're out on that one. <laughs> right. And so, yeah, I'm here with, uh, with Christian today. And uh, it is our privilege we get to talk in and through Second Thessalonians. And so a few weeks ago, uh, Christian was able to launch us off, and he took us through chapter one. Mm-hmm. And we got to look at some pretty dynamic realities, not only about who they were as people, but you he, you got to see what he kept doing over and over again, the two sides of the coin, <laughs> and just the privilege of being able to, in that moment, as Paul, just through the power of the Holy Spirit, as he was being led along, revealed to these people just those two sides of the coin. But we finished with just the amazing reality of this group of people. They're not just anybody. They're a group of people that God, in His grace and His goodness, had chosen to do to make them worthy via the work of his son Jesus and they were being declared and shown to be worthy in how they were living out their lives and in amongst the the people of Thessalonica. And then uh, the last two weeks we've looked at a pretty simple passage to unpack. There's no big deal to it in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12 where we talked about a man of lawlessness. We talked about uh, this apostasy. We talked about also just the reality of a... uh, of this one, whoever it is, the what, or he, the restrainer. But the most important things we wanted people to see is that Jesus is returning. And not only is he returning, he is going to be victorious. And in that victory, we can have confidence Mm -hmm. and security. But it leads us to your text, Bob, that we have that starts off in in verse 13, in which Paul is going to build all the way from chapter 1 in through chapter 2. And then there's going to be this big, bold declaration to stand firm, not only in light of what he's already written, but he's going to kind of pull out some beautiful realities of the purpose and plan of God in ways that we get to, I guess, maybe see that other side of the coin again. So here's here's what I'd love for you to do. Maybe just off the front end, could you just unpack for us just a little bit, like why is this text so important? And why is it that people that are listening to us today, they really need to, to pay attention to this particular text? Yeah, well, just a couple of very actually simple observations that I want to make right off the bat. There, there are two things about this passage that strike me as saying how important this passage is to the believers. The first is the use of the word but. Hmm. It's, it's the beginning of this passage, and what it does ultimately is that it drives the contrast, very strong contrast, between the deception and the refusal to love the truth mm-hmm. and the condemnation of the people who would end up, say, following the man of lawlessness, whoever or whatever he is. Um, and, and their situation, yeah. it's, it's exactly opposite. And there are a number of places in this passage where the very language that's used is used kind of in opposition and, and in sharp contrast to what was going on in verses 1 through 12. So that's the first thing, is that this word, the simple word, but, 
tells you a lot about where this passage is going. Mm -hmm. It's it is to draw as strong a contrast as possible between God's people and those who are not. Mm. A second thing about it is that anybody who's reading this passage that has read chapter one in the same context will realize that, well, Paul's repeating himself because he starts out this passage with the same exact expression that he used in chapter one. Yeah. We ought always to thank God for you, brethren beloved by the Lord, this time, he's not talking about the evidence that he's seen in their lives of the faith and the love mm -hmm. and the hope that mm -hmm. they had. As important and special as that is, and as much as that is reason to thank God, mm -hmm. now he's going to pull the curtain back and go all the way back to eternity past mm -hmm. and say, guess what? This faith that you have this is not something that's a, a Johnny come lately. It's not something that, you, oh, it's so good that we happen to believe. Mm. Instead, it is the unfolding of the eternal plan of God for his people. And that's why he uses the expression, he chose you. And he doesn't just say, actually, he chose you. It's, it's a verb that means he chose you for himself, wow. which is really powerful. And because of this great salvation that God had planned for them from all eternity past, he then would call them to, the, to this gospel, to this salvation, um, through the call of the gospel. Amen. And then once they came to Jesus Christ, he then makes it clear, because you're in this position, you have every reason to have eternal comfort and good hope Amen. by grace. That is so cool, Bob, because yeah. I think like in the midst of we've seen how this is a struggling, anxious, distressed group of people. Young mm. group of people. Young, young, young yeah, believers. Young yes. believers, right? And and I love how in chapter one, he gives them hope and comfort by showing in the midst of the circumstances, mm -hmm. the grace of God at work in their lives. And then as you just pointed out, now here at the end of chapter two, he says, okay, now let's also not just focus on your circumstances, what's going on right now. Let's zoom out to the super big picture of what God has been doing. Not just what you've been doing, what other people have been doing to you, but let's zoom out. And I think, gosh, what a what an important thing in the ups and downs of life, good times or bad times, to, to have that reminder to not have our blinders on to only see our present circumstances. Yes. But the ability through the word of God to step back and go, look what God's been doing from eternity past. That is beautiful truth. That's so good, man. All right. So that's where we're at. <clears throat> we're at this beautiful place where Paul, the pastor, Paul, this, this man that deeply loves this group of people, that sees what they're going through, that is answering this question about the day of the Lord they were confused on, but he's, he's caring for them and he's trying to show them this big, broad picture. So that's what we're going to jump in today. And so we're going to kind of try to unpack some of these ideal truths and maybe kind of bring a little bit more light to, to what Bob has just said. All right. So that was, I was sitting here, we just, we had a little break in between and both Christian and I, he, Bob was wondering, you know, is that a little bit too much? And we're like, oh no, that was great. You know, <laughs> anyways, like it was, it was just so good to get that, that unpacked for us. So, okay. So that was the summary of it. Let's, let's try to draw that out just a little bit. Like, what do you think then in, in that, out of that summary, then, as we look down in this text in, in these verses, what are some of the key points in here that help maybe clarify or maybe bring to light a little bit more of what you were talking about? 
And if you're following along at home, just a reminder, it's 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 through 16 is the portion that Bob's taken us through. 17, 17. actually. 17, I'm sorry. Yes, yeah, 17. <clears throat> yeah, so maybe draw, draw out a few key points for us here. Okay. Well, one of the things that struck me is, remember, we're talking about young Christians. We're talking about people who don't have a New Testament. Mm -hmm. They've never read Ephesians. Mm -hmm. They've never read First and Second Corinthians. They have only the ideas about the eternal God that they have been introduced to since the time that Paul delivered mm -hmm. the gospel to them in the first place. And they came from a background of paganism. They had, as Paul said in, in his first letter, they had turned from idols to serve the living and true God. But what would their experience of their false gods have been like? They would have thought of them just as bigger, badder humans. Mm. They wouldn't have thought of them as having eternal plans. They would have thought of them as, as being more reactionary mm -hmm. rather than as having a permanent intention and a permanent plan for the universe and for people. And so really in, in drawing their attention to the fact that God had made this plan to take them for himself as his people and that it was from the beginning, because that's what the way God does all things. He doesn't need to figure out you know, like the expression goes, I think, I forgot which movie it was in. I'm working this out as we're, as we're going along, right? <laughs> and, and that's the way we act as people, and that's the way that they would have thought of their gods. But God doesn't have to work anything out as, as we're going along. He has this all planned out from eternity. So he's giving, the, Paul is giving them a much bigger picture of the greatness of God and his ability to handle all of their circumstances and everything that takes place in their lives, including the, the persecution, including the troubles that they were experiencing. But it, it's, it's taking them back to eternity instead of just thinking, like you said, mm. Christian, about the present time. Mm. Now, once he brought them back to eternity, he kind of shows how God in his plan to take a people for himself how he implemented it, the means that he used to implement it. And so the two expressions that you get, he chose you how? In sanctification of the spirit and in faith in the truth. And so God's plan was, I'm going to take you as my people, but I'm going to do it through the work of the spirit Amen. in setting you apart from the rest of this world and by your faith in the truth. So you've got both a very divine side and a very human side that are a part of his plan. And then, because having the plan is not enough, you have to actually implement it in history. He says, and it's to this salvation that he called you mm. by our gospel. Mm. And so they could now see that their part in this plan wasn't just something that happened the first moment that he believed. It was, it was the execution of the eternal plan of God that included all of those aspects and those means. And now they are fully in the midst of God's plan for them. That's so good. Which would have been, again, and this is why it's so important to understand the audience he's going to, that would have been huge for them. Especially like because we when we did the kind of the intro material to the book of Thessalonians, like every single one of their plethora of gods <clears throat> that they would have come out of, the idols they would have worshipped, even Caesar worship, 
it would have been a mixture of such uh, uh, such temporal dynamics, right? Yeah. Where it was very much, however Caesar felt that day, yeah. would depend on his kind of love for yeah. us as leader or Kabiris or Zeus or, you know, whatever God it was that they saw. And all of a sudden Paul comes in and says, that's not, that's, that's not the one true God. That's not... That's not who he is, which, again, as a brand new believer, how huge to, to understand that reality. All right, so take us a little further. <clears throat> Help us understand a little bit more about this. Sure. One of the things that uh, is rather impressive is the use that he makes of the Old Testament, even though it isn't obvious necessarily. For one thing, the, the phrase that he uses to describe these believers in chapter 2 is the same phrase that he used to describe them in chapter 1, that they are beloved of the Lord. Mm -hmm. And that goes all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 33, verse 12, where in speaking of God's plan for the tribe of Benjamin and the tribe of Israel, he said, you are beloved of the Lord. <laughs> and that you will dwell securely. It's a very interesting combination where you, you wouldn't necessarily pick up on it, but Paul knew his Old Testament, and that's what the Word of God had said, and he could apply it to the Thessalonian believers. But in addition to that, this whole idea of being chosen for himself goes back to the Old Testament. Again, the book of Deuteronomy. Mm -hmm. In chapter 26, he actually said, this day... The Lord your God is choosing you to become his special people, and you'll be exalted above all the nations. And so this, this idea of choosing, choosing is not new to the people of Thessalonica. God has always had his choice people. And just as he had planned this from eternity, not only for the Thessalonians, but for mm -hmm. the people of Israel as well, then at one point in history for the people of Israel, God says, okay, this day I'm taking you for myself. You're part of my covenant people. I have this special relationship with you, and I'm going to exalt you above all the nations. And you see the parallel to that in this passage in Thessalonians where he says, I'm choosing you for myself. You're, you're being called by the gospel into the reality of this. And this ultimate goal is that you should obtain the glory of Jesus wow. Christ. Yeah. I think that was that, that language of glory that we saw pow so powerfully in chapter one, that it, again, as I, kind of the way I presented it, it's the glorious presence of Jesus that brings destruction on the unbelievers and then causes him to be glorified in his saints like that crazy. So there is this really interesting way in which, again, I think that language, I don't know if you'd agree with this, that obtaining the glory of Jesus, of our Lord Jesus Christ, there is kind of that casting out to the not yet. There is the sense. Of, yes. Oh, yeah. And just to think within these two sentences, he takes us from the beginning, the choice of God mm -hmm. enacted in history when the gospel came to you and you believed. Mm hmm. For the ultimate purpose that when Jesus is revealed, you will obtain, you will, you will stand with him in that glory. Like. Like the way that Paul in such an economy of words is able to encapsulate Huge thought. the eternal plan of God brought to fruition is just like from eternity past <clears throat> to eternity future. I would need about 45 minutes to unpack that. I feel like, and there's Paul in two sentences. It's but amazing. it's incredible, right? On the one hand, the glory that will 
destroy mm. is the same glory that gets manifested in the lives of his people that he shares with us. Yeah. Right. It's, it's what a, what a dynamic, mm. like that he's able to tie those two together in such a powerful way. And he, and you know, think about what John says in first John, we shall be like him for yeah. we shall see him as he mm. is. That's sharing in his glory. Yeah. And it's, that's an amazing thing, especially when you think about the fact that in Isaiah, God says, I will not share my glory with mm. another. Yeah which means that we have to become part of Jesus Christ if we're going to share in the glory of God. That's mm -hmm. an amazing thing, what he did through Christ. Yeah, I mean, you and I have talked about John 17, that he shared his glory, right? Yeah. The, the glory that I've shared with these. You know, you're just Jesus like, is praying to the Father. And yeah. He says, the glory that you have given to me, I have given to them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. Like there's just this constant tide of the privilege that we have as his people. And I think that's the point where we often get um, uncomfortable sometimes. Oh, yeah. Because... You can't think about that thought for long to go, is that right? Like, do I deserve that? Like, is it, is it, it feels a little weird. Am I, am I kind of going above my pay grade here or, or thinking too much of myself? And again, if there is this weird sort of that, if we view this idea of obtaining the glory of the Lord is that like somehow God finally reveals us for the wonderful people that we always were. <laughs> yeah. Like he shows the world oh, how sure. great we are. Yeah, we do get a weird perverted look at that. Mm. But if on the other hand, we see the like the incalculably generous heart of God to share his greatness with us, not only help us to see it and appreciate it, but then to actually like to share in it. Yeah. What's it? What's the, what is it in uh, the end of Hebrews? Talking about the discipline of a father, how it's not pleasant at times, but it can yield a peaceful food of righteousness. But right. it says, our fathers disciplined us as they saw fit, but God disciplines us so that we might share in his glory. Like, what an amazing privilege we can't deserve it. Yes. But if Which that's what God desires for us, yeah. who am I to tell God, no, 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 that's too much. I'm yeah. not. That's what he wants. And it was his intent from the very beginning. Amen. Yeah. Right. It wasn't this again. This wasn't some Johnny come lately, even addition where it's like, oh, and by the way, I'll, this was his intent from all along. Right. Mm -hmm. That we would be mm -hmm. in some way share in a way that we will. We're still trying to figure out in the, you know, the not yet component of what that means. But what a powerful reality. Yeah. But if that if that humbles us, that's good. If that makes us go, I could never deserve that, but I want it. And if that's what you want to give me, I want that, too. Yeah. But if we go, oh, no, that's that's too much. No, I don't want to. I, I, thanks, but no thanks, God. Wow, that's actually our own pride that oh. keeps us from that. And to, to not desire anything other than his intent right. is crazy. So yeah. help me understand the stand firm part of this. So, okay, so he, he lays all this out, right? And then there's a command. He tells these people, no, you got to, to Christian's point, in a few sentences, which would take us like <laughs> several <laughs> minutes to explain <laughs> He all of a sudden comes in with this command to stand firm. How does that how does that fit together? So now he's beginning to draw conclusions from uh, uh, from what he's told them about the plan of God. That if this is all true, and it is, then what are the consequences that follow from that? And the first one is they were being shaken. Right? That was the first part of, of chapter two. They were being shaken by the, the insecurity of the message that they heard that mm. made them think that they had missed the day of the Lord. And he now tells them, in, in direct contrast to that, stand firm. And here's the reason why you can stand firm, because you are a part of this eternal plan mm. of God. And 
one of the passages that I think Christian used, or maybe Todd used, um, from Matthew 24, mm. where he's he's talking to his people and saying that the you know this deceiver would show signs and wonders that, if possible, would sway the very elect. But it the if possible, it's not possible, it, it's not yeah. possible right? <laughs> and so he's saying, stand firm. But then he gives them the way to stand firm, and that is hold fast to these traditions that you have been taught, both in the letters that I've written and in, in the personal contact that I've had with you, because that's the way you're going to stand firm. So go with what you know to be true. There's been a tremendous emphasis in this passage upon faith in the truth mm -hmm. as compared to those who were deluded and believed the lie. Mm, yeah. But the truth, that's the other thing, is that we have to recognize where that truth is found. It's going to be found in the traditions of the apostles, which are written for us in the Bible. Amen. And so we've got to stick with the Bible if we want to be able to stand firm. Yeah, which he seems to be contrasting hard from verse two, right? The, the idea of a prophecy, the idea of mm -hmm. this idea of a spoken word, the idea of a supposed letter that's from us. That's not true. This is truth. Yes. And he, and he, he couches that to give them then this capacity to go, this is the truth of you standing, you stand firm in this, mm -hmm. in this plan of God, in the revealed truth of what the apostles have taught you, you can stand firm and not be shaken. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right, so to finish it up, let's let, let's go after those last couple of verses because there's some there's some aspects in which, you know, Christians, his kind of finished with a really cool prayer. In chapter uh, one. In yeah. chapter one, in 16 and 17, right? He he seems to be kind of finishing in a, in a prayer for them in a way. Walk, walk us through uh, verses 16 and 17. Well, the first thing is it's just so comforting to know that he says, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father. So he's starting out and he's talking about the Father and the Son of the Trinity and that they are directly involved <clears throat> with the good, with the well-being of God's people. Mm. And so when he says, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, these are the things that can come only from God. We cannot look for our comfort and we cannot look for our hope anywhere else than from God himself. And so he says, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father. I mean, you can't, you can't get more intricately involved with the Trinity mm. than, than he is suggesting here. And what is it that he wants them to do, to, to receive, to experience? May, he, may they comfort <clears throat> your hearts and establish them mm -hmm. in every good word and work. Mm -hmm. Work and word. I got the two backwards, mm -hmm. <laughs> which almost brings us to the, uh, the textual variant thing. Mm -hmm. All right. So I'm going to take, save the textual variant. Yeah. <laughs> because there is something to talk about, because I do think this will be good for people from an application standpoint, because we're going to, they're going to see this uh, in, in other times. And I think this is just a great time to help people understand something like that. So, okay. So that's kind of the big picture of, of what he's been saying. We kind of given a little summary. We kind of now understand some of those key details. So here's what I want to do next. I want to land this plane into some ways in which we always, we always talk about this is inside of friendships, inside of a local church, 
and this is the best place to try to land uh, Leads of Amazing Truth. So that's what that's what we'll do next as we kind of think through how to how to apply this to our lives. All right, so there to be and I kind of laughed and, and we were talking about this idea of a of a of a textual variant and uh, in some ways we probably should have defined that out just a little bit. And I think one of the key things that I for me anyways that when I went through a New Testament introduction with my particular professor and we had to be grilled and all the different manuscripts that are available that we still have today for us to look back and understand what the earliest writings were like. I think there's close to like 5,000 of them that we have to this day, which is an incredible amount. They come in different ways in which there's different lengths. Mm -hmm. Some of them have an entire copy of like the New Testament. Some have books of the New Testament, whether Mm -hmm. it's some of the Gospels Mm -hmm. or the letters. And then some of them only have like small pages. And then we even have what are called just even fragments, Fragments. these Mm -hmm. little tiny bits. But that's where we get our current New Testament that eventually gets translated to English from. Now, when we talk about a textual variant, a variant is one of those things that sometimes due to like maybe a scribal error, maybe we're missing a little chunk of a particular text of the copy. But we go back and we're always trying to find the earliest copies to kind of understand those ones that were closest to when the original documents were put together. But every once in a while, there might be a little misspelled word on one of them. There might even be a break, which is actually kind of what happens in the one we have. They put a space in and we went, hey, wait. Or, there, that, or in the, the text they were translating from, there weren't spaces between the words. And so the scribe has to make judgment make calls that, of where do I break the words? Which was generally yep. the bigger one, is yep. that there wasn't a space. And so now we're yep. having to go back and we're having to decide, well, where does it break? And a, and a scribe would maybe make a decision, let's break it here. Another one would decide, no, we should probably make it here. But it can affect the reading of a particular text. Now, just to encourage all of you. In no way does it take away from what Paul is saying here that no matter which textual variant we'll talk about here, I'll let you, I'll turn you loose here in just a second, Bob. But even in the in the entire flow of the argument in the New Testament, these variants don't uh, don't affect the overall picture. They don't mm-hmm. af- affect the overall message that the apostles were giving us. But if sometimes you look down inside of your Bible, <clears throat> and you'll notice that in our particular case, we use the ESV, and it says one thing. And then you might look in the NIV or the New American Standard and go, hey, wait, why is Paul, you, or why are these translators using different words? So maybe you can explain for us, Bob, just a little bit, what, what, is, the, what is kind of this textual variant that we find inside of, of 2 Thessalonians 2? Yes, uh, this is a question that came up early on when I was uh, reading the passage and preparing and going, that's... That's a very different way to translate the same words. And so I thought, I wonder if there's a variant here. Mm. And looked it up, and sure enough, there is. And and both versions of the variant um, are found in a number of manuscripts. So it's not even like it's real easy necessarily yeah, to decide. Which is why, if you're reading the ESV, it reads in verse 13 that uh, God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. Whereas if you read it in the New American Standard or the NIV, it's from the beginning, God chose you for salvation, which it sounds very different. But in the Greek language, it's almost impossible to see the difference. Um, The the first fruits idea is expressed by a single word, aparkain. The from the beginning is actually two words app or case. And this is a situation where 
as, as you already pointed out, because there may not be any space between the letters in the way that, that some of the manuscripts were written, it's almost a judgment call as to whether or not there should be a division after the app and then the arcase as a separate word, or whether or not it should be joined together, app arcane. And just to make things more complex um, in some ways, it is possible that some of the copying that was done by the scribes may have been done from somebody who was speaking this out loud. Mm -hmm. And it would be very easy to, to hear Aparcane and to write Aparcase and think that it's two words or vice versa, mm -hmm. that, that the speaker is saying Aparcase and you say, oh, Aparcane. Yeah. And so that's what you write down. Okay, so like, let's say it in this particular case, if Paul's arguing from the beginning, mm -hmm. how does that, what does that mean for us as we look at this particular verse? Yeah, well... I must admit that I'm inclined towards from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the one I choose. But I'm curious, like, what yeah. is Paul saying then in that case? So he's just stressing the fact that the choice that God made was not just something that took place recently. When God makes his plans, he made them in eternity past. Mm -hmm. He doesn't have any need to change his plans, to add to his plans, to modify his plans, because he knows all things, and he knew all things from the beginning. As Isaiah says, I know the end from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And so the, the very fact that this is the way that it's, uh, that, that that's the way it's understood in a number of the manuscripts makes really good sense. It's just focusing on the fact that the plan of God, the choosing of God, is something that was an eternal choice. Mm -hmm. It's not something that he decided to do in the first century, going, oh, look, these people want to believe in me. I think I'm going to choose them. <laughs> yeah, this isn't the playground picking sides for, yeah. for basketball. I choose you, you know, yeah. like, yeah. No, I think that's that's an interesting thing. And it does seem, again, one of the things that's that's been really interesting for us in studying these two letters is seeing them as likely the first two letters that Paul wrote. Yes, yes. And then you're going, okay, what what thoughts here are further developed in other letters? Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think one of the things on this in, in that split between the, the from the beginning and the first fruits is that other letters of Paul speak more about this idea of a choice of God from the beginning, mm -hmm. like Ephesians 1, for instance. Mm -hmm. And then other letters of Paul's talk a lot about this idea of believers as the first fruits in some mm -hmm. way. And so yeah, even so there, we look at it. Walk us yeah. through the first fruits idea. So let's say, yeah. it's, let's say it's first fruits. Yeah. Okay. So first fruits is at least a, you know, a reasonable choice. It may not be the, the best choice, but the idea of the first fruits goes back to uh, Hebrew culture mm -hmm. and it, it really to the Old Covenant, because in, under the Old Covenant, the first fruits, the first part of the harvest that would ripen was something that was to be taken away and given to the Lord. And so... Paul actually uses this expression of first fruits in the New Testament, mm -hmm. say, for example, in 1 Corinthians 16, 15, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. where he talks about the believers who were the first fruits of Achaia, mm -hmm. the first believers. And it's, and it's not the same thing as just saying they were the first. That's the thing, is that the first fruits would be, for, the, for somebody who's expecting the harvest, it is an anticipation of a full harvest that is to come. And so it's a beautiful idea that he's saying, you guys are the first fruits that God has brought about 
in I can't say Macedonia because he went to Philippi first, yeah, right, but yeah. at least you're the first fruits in Thessalonica, but there is a much larger harvest to come. Mm -hmm. And the idea that they, that they were chosen to be first fruits, that's exciting, you know? So both of these ideas, either the first fruits or from the beginning, are ideas that are firmly planted in scripture mm -hmm. in other passages, which is why either one is truly acceptable. We honestly just don't know which one was the original and which one was a, a copious, well-meaning error. Yeah, there's just the beauty is, is to your point, what you laid out, Christian, we find it well attested in other books of the Bible. This isn't like we're not trying to make a decision about two foreign concepts that are somehow mm -hmm. not found in the rest of scripture. This yeah. is very founded throughout, whether it's in Corinth, where Paul was at the time writing 1 Corinthians, he, mm -hmm. he laid out this idea, or even just like you said for, to his, in his letter to the Ephesians, well, we would have already seen this idea of God choosing from the beginning. So it's not like it's a, either one is foreign, they're very, they're very real. And so I, just, I wanted you guys just to know that. I know that sounds like a weird application, but you're going to find that in different ways, whether you were talking about uh, uh, the woman caught in adultery, right? There's there's a, yes. there's a variant there or the end of Mark 16, uh -huh. you know, with the whole drinking poison handling snake section of yeah, it, yeah, yeah. right? It's just there's these places where if you ever get to a point in your Bible and you're like, hey, wait, why does one version have this verse, not this verse? Why, why these different things? Well, you'll just know. Now you kind of have an idea. That, that sometimes this happened and it's all around how texts were copied and manuscripts that were made. But man, you don't, the beauty is, is you don't lose the message yeah. of the apostles teaching. Everything is firmly established. So I just, I wanted you to, to be able to hear And I that. think there's something so cool about, again, the reminder that we're part of a big family as followers of Jesus and the spirit who inspired the word has also guided the people of God through the word. The first time I remember starting to learn about textual variants and text criticism and all the, the decisions you have to make as you're trying to decide, okay, what seems to be the best way to translate it? You can really start to go, does anybody know? Can we be sure about anything? And then over time, the more that like you, you look into it and study it, there's almost this different sense of confidence. The confidence comes from the fact of there have been thousands and thousands of eyes on thousands and thousands of manuscripts. Mm -hmm. And the mm -hmm. the areas where there's differences are it's a small percentage of the overall text. There's they're not really any that that core doctrines are derived from. Mm -hmm. And especially one like this, where there's like either Either option is orthodox. Either, mm -hmm. It's not like the choice between heresy and not. It's like, oh, there's a there's a, a greater confidence in the fact that okay, we can approach this book, yeah. knowing that the the Spirit of God who inspired the words, who indwells the people of God, can guide us, um, even in these these areas where we have to make some judgment calls. And let me just throw in just a, a couple of other things about textual criticism. I did a little bit of reading to see what was the most recent information available. And uh, you had mentioned, Todd, 5,000. Well, the, the source that I read said that there are 5,700. Oh. And that's just Greek. Yeah. Just Greek portions or, or full manuscripts yeah. of the New Testament. And the way that the author put it as he was describing this, he said, it's not like because we have these variants and there are like over 200,000 of them easily that we can't know what the word of God is. It's actually such a, such an embarrassing wealth yeah, of ancient documents that we know that the truth is contained within the documents that we have. Yes. We just don't always know which one is the best choice among the variants. Yeah. And so it's, it's something that can give us great confidence. Amen. There is no other ancient document 
that has the kind of attestation to it that the New Testament does. Yeah. 5,700 documents to work with. I expected you to be more precise than me. <laughs> well, I, like I said, I just... I love that. Yeah, well, I, I, and for some of you, you may not remember this, it's, but it's kind of making a comeback as the King James only debate, mm. which I've kind of run into again. I thought that thing had died down, <laughs> but they'll come up and show you a verse and say, see, it's in here, but it's not in your Bible. So therefore the King James version is better. And it's because they don't understand this idea of, under, of textual variance. We're trying to find the most attested, the, the most accurate reading of this particular text. And the reason that there's still a little bit of uncertainty in this one is because yeah. it's so 50-50. It, mm -hmm. it can go either way and both 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 lead to an absolutely orthodox understanding of, of what God is doing in the world. And so. Yeah. And the fun part about archaeology and some of these like discoveries is that you have to go further in the future to get, gain more clarity on the past. And so the text, True. the amount of text that we had to work with and the scrutiny of the text that we had to work with is, is, is far superior to what they had in the 1600s than they were making the, yeah. the, the King James Bible. Well, and B.B. Warfield at the beginning of the 20th century, actually I guess it was the end of the 19th century, um, he wrote the first major uh, work on the textual criticism of the New Testament in, yeah. in the United States. And at the time that he was writing that, he said, we are so close to the originals at this point that wow. we have a 99.9% .9 certainty about what the text is of the New Testament. The number of places that are so open to question is so small compared to the entire New Testament that he, he said, I have confidence that as textual criticism progresses, we will eventually get to the point where we know a hundred percent. Yeah. Which yeah. is crazy. Which, okay. And then let me just say this. If any of you right now have been looking at your watches or going, hey, maybe I'll <laughs> skip to the next episode because this sounds super nerdy. I totally get it. And I, I would say that, that the three of us here have just dabbled in this field. Oh, there's so much more. And But here's one thing. It, has made, it truly makes me thankful to God for Amen. the ultra nerds in our spiritual family. Amen. Who this is their passion to dig into this <laughs> for the benefit of the rest of us having confidence in the yes. New Testament. But I hated Thank them in New that. Testament introduction. I was like, oh, I can care if it's P46 or whatever it is. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so... Let's let's take it. Why, Christian, why don't you take us a little past that? Let's let's land a few things. Let's get off our nerd fest and <laughs> and let's 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 land this a little bit more. All right, I'll take my uh, spinning propeller hat yeah, off yeah, and, and get please. a little less nerdy for a second. <laughs> Here, one of the things that I think is so cool is the the pastoral heart of Paul to bolster the right confidence in his mm. hearers that they have not missed the day of the Lord, that there is a truth to their faith in Jesus. And he doesn't give them a singular hook to hang that confidence on. He doesn't just say, I was with you at the campfire at the last night of youth camp when you put your rock in the fire or, you know, whatever little thing like that that we do, which I'm not even like totally like, like bad mouthing that. But he doesn't just go back to the moment of their conversion. A couple times in the letter he does, right? He said that in chapter one. We, we thank God that when we came to you, our testimony was believed. And he appealed to a lot in First Thessalonians. Absolutely. The, the and time even, he had with them. Even again here in, in the part at the end where that God called you to this salvation through our gospel. When we came, Paul and Silas and Timothy came and preached, you believed. That's, mm -hmm. a, that's mm -hmm. one of the hooks for their confidence that they are truly the people of God. But then the way he takes one hook and he says it all the way in eternity past that God chose you from the beginning. To believe, like he chose you to be these ones to inherit this salvation. But then he said at the beginning of chapter one, the confidence, the other hook for it is in the midst of the afflictions that you're suffering, 
love and faith and steadfastness is coming out. Mm-hmm. Look at the character of mm-hmm. Jesus being expressed even in the hardship of what you're doing. The ongoing life. The ongoing life. Yeah. And then especially that idea of the glory that we will share with Jesus when he comes. He hangs this other hook in the future return of Jesus. And when we start to talk about this idea, what does it look like to have confidence in our salvation, to have eternal security sometimes the way that we talk about it? We look for that. We need to look not just for the singular hook, but that yes. that whole thread of what did God do in eternity past? What did he do at that moment that he opened your eyes to see the beauty of Jesus? What is there going on right mm-hmm. now that is, mm-hmm. Paul's point in chapter one, the evidence that you will be considered worthy of God's kingdom when he comes, that's coming out of your life now. And then what is that ultimate hope of what's going to happen when Jesus, like that's what it is to have a a a broad foundation for our security in our faith. And I think what's so powerful about that, like in my own life, there are different points in our lives where those different facets become very important. Mm -hmm. And even when we're walking with others, right, through this reality is that sometimes I have to take them to that hook in the future. Yeah. And I need to show them that hook and remind them of that hook and the security of that hanging there in the reality. But then sometimes I need to take them all the way back to eternity past and and hang that and show them that hook too. And then, Sometimes I do have to take them back to that moment at yes. which the Spirit of God grabbed them. And I think like we we sometimes have a tendency to look at one hook. And we and I think what's so beautiful about what both of you guys showed and what you preached through First Thessalonians because you had those the easy sections. <laughs> no, no, but but um is is Paul a pastor? He was he he did. He said, Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna show you this hook. Mm-hmm. And just this this gentle shepherd wanted to grill that truth, right? This truth that he keeps beckoning them to. Mm-hmm. And then he takes them to the eternity past and mm-hmm. he, he grills them in that truth back there. And then he swings them into eternity future. And just that, I think like it was a master class mm. on not only uh, our own understanding of the importance of understanding all those hooks, but a master class on how you help others in such instability, mm-hmm. insecurity, yes. losing their heads mm-hmm. to, to enrapture themselves, not in their capacity or their ability, but to take them in a grander way to the ability and the capacity of God mm-hmm. in what he's doing in, from eternity past to eternity future. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That was for me that like, as you guys were talking earlier, I kind of had my mouth shut, but that was the thought that was mm-hmm. going through my head. Just so thankful, Paul, mm-hmm chose to show us that as a means of how we not only find encouragement, but encourage others. And it's so cool because it's not like, okay, cool. Well, if, if you just keep those things in mind, you'll never battle with insecurity. You'll never battle with anxiety or distress or doubt about your, no, like that's going to come. We are feeble creatures that we, we are way better at forgetting than we are at remembering. Mm-hmm. And I think, what do we do in those circumstances? What do we do when our hope is shaken? What do we do when we're doubting God's presence in our lives right now? Step back out. Look at the big story. Look at what God has been doing from all eternity. Remember that moment when he called you. Remember that moment when you said, I don't even understand all of who Jesus is, but I want him. And keep going. Keep going. Yeah. Like, And I think that like that is... This is the way we follow Jesus, not from a place of, well, if you just figure it out the first time, you'll never struggle with it again. No, hmm. we can, we, this is in the New Testament so that we can come back again yeah. and again throughout life and remember we are a part of a grand thing that God is doing, and it doesn't rest just on our so- shoulders. It Amen. rests firmly on His. You know? Amen. Yeah, it's one time Spencer and I were together. I, we'd 
Lisa and I kind of hit a low point in our life. Mm-hmm. And um, he actually beckoned me back to Ephesians, but same idea. Is he just looked at me and, and he just kept saying over and over and over again, God chose you mm-hmm. before the foundation of the world. And I, I, oh, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. And he just kept repeating it and repeating it. <laughs> and finally, I looked at him and it, it took me probably about like maybe because I'm, mm. I'm a little hard headed and, you know, maybe a little stupid. <laughs> I can relate to Sometime that. in there, though, it finally hit me what he was doing. He was doing what Paul was doing. Yeah. You know, in this very like just passionate friend way of don't forget who you are. Yeah. Your, your, mm-hmm. your, your capacity and ability is not grounded, Todd, right now in your present, in your capacity to do things. Your capacity is grounded in eternity past something Amen. over which you had zero control over. Mm-hmm. But yet God, and then he reminded me all through First Thessalonians, or Ephesians of God's love. And then he just kept repeating over, you know, you are loved. Mm. You have the sign of his love. You know, anyways, it was just, it was such a beautiful way in which a friend, which mm. I think we have to be reminded. Yeah. We as friends need to do that for each other. Amen. Yes. So I give us one big thought before we go. Christian and I just totally... We ramrodded everything. So give us one big thought. Give preachers a microphone and I know we we started watch out. And one more thing. <laughs> I think that it, it's it's unfortunate that sometimes we put so much emphasis upon faith that we think of it as Thanks for, for joining us on Sunday. My prayer is that this passage will